pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry, and I am not convinced you were ready, even though you said you were ready. I was completely ready. Okay. Well, we are here to do our series on systematic theology. We're in what we're calling systematic theology three, which covers the doctrines of the church and end times. Did we have the spirit in systematic theology two and the Holy Spirit in? In three. Yeah, in systematic three right yeah but i didn't write that in the script because i'm like i don't know if that doesn't matter they're all hitting fast forward right now all right um (laughs) something you guys may not know these uh theologies is really a result of our own labors uh we're not just taking you through a book on systematic theology um it's worth remembering that the primary purpose of the podcast uh, is not to gain a name for ourselves or try to develop some brand um, where we can leverage ourselves, but it's a pastoral podcast where we're trying to give our people at Missio Dei Fellowship, um, our churches, uh, and, and the people in our church, in other words, sound biblical teaching. We want them to learn to think biblically uh, so that they can live in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. But at the same time, we invite everyone to, who listens to continue to do so. We hope that along the way, you're able to find much that is helpful in these episodes. And so with that, we'll move on to the subject at hand. We're working on the doctrine of the church. Up to this point, we've worked on the or introduced the doctrine, explained that something is very important, but also something that creates a lot of controversy. Um, and we're going to deal with those. Uh, we saw various terms and imagery that were used to refer to the church. We even were able to make that distinction between what's called the universal church as well versus the local church. And the thing that we pointed out was that the the overwhelming number of passages dealing with the church are with the local church. And so that's what we're going to focus on. We also looked about how uh, at how the reformers viewed the church. Uh, because the Reformation radically affects each Christian today, even though most probably aren't aware of that. And then finally, we considered when the church began and its relationship to Israel. Right. So today we're going to talk about what is, therefore, its purpose. Uh, Now, this is a pretty big deal, because if we can't figure out why the church exists, then we're really just left to wander about doing whatever comes to mind. Uh, which is what many, sadly, churches are doing today. So when you see, you you know, guys using super soakers to illustrate the Holy Spirit, uh, you should be asking, why is that either a good or a bad thing? And obviously, people in those churches aren't asking that, which is why those pastors are able to get away with it. And buy multi-million dollar homes. But, but yeah, it really is, though, ask, why is it good or bad? Not whether you like it or not, or whether you agree with it, but is it? Is it actually right? Right. When you create a seeker-sensitive service, as another example, as your main draw and venue, again, you should ask, is something like that good or is it bad? When you go for a unique demographic of people, and so you create a church around what's attracting them, 
again, is that good or bad? Um, we know of a church that they market to men. I was in thinking their 40s. that same church. That's funny that we both, yeah, forties and fifties. So they designed everything within the church to be industrial, and the stated industrial looking. Yeah, you know, and this, and Harley colors. Yeah, that's right. It was like orange and yeah. something. And their stated purpose was that is the target of the least churched people in the U.S. apparently or in our area. Um, ironically, I found it was somewhat humorous that it's also the highest earning demographic. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Uh, when you make mercy ministries like reading programs, food pantries, and such major works for the church, and it becomes really its entire identity in the community. Again, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? When your church is defined by suits or long dresses or only a piano and hymn books, is that a good or a bad thing? And then finally, what is allowable to do in a church service and gathering and what is not allowable? In other words, that regulative or normative rule of worship that we talked about on the last episode. Um, and we could go on about this, uh, but why does the church exist and what actually is its true purpose? And so that's what we're going to talk about right now. All right. So we will argue in this podcast that there are three main purposes for the assembled church. Um, now, this is, again, making the distinction between the universal church, which is made up of all believers since Acts 2. And it also makes a distinction between the church and the whole of the redeemed, uh, something that we would just call the people of God, um, meaning the whole of the redeemed would go all the way back to the days of Adam. Um, what the church does together in any given place on earth is not the same as what is going on in heaven or took place in the Old Testament. It is a, a unique period and uh, event. It also makes a distinction between the individual people of the church. So uh, the reality is that when you're saved, you're brought into the body of Christ, uh, in other words, the church, by Jesus through the Spirit. So we're not going to be talking about what you as an individual are to do. That's just the New Testament. Um, we're, we're talking about what does the local assemblies of believers, the, the local church, what are they to be focused upon? And so the very first thing is probably pretty obvious to you. It's it's worship. Um, it comes from that old English uh, word called worth plus ship. So worth-ship, it's, it's the idea of having value or worth. It involves being held in high esteem and honor, and it, it, it involves uh, various aspects of the person. Uh, the idea of emotions, there's this feeling of adoration, of fear and reverence. Uh, it involves the mind of knowing, learning, and considering what is true about who we worship or what, if you're worshiping a thing. Uh, and it involves the body, um, using your body to sing, to bow, to eat or to drink. So um, that's what we're going to look at now. Yeah, so just a little bit of definitions on worship. Here's one that comes from Andrew Blackwood. He says, worship is man's response to God's revelation. Uh, here's one from D.A. Carson. He says, worship is nothing but the outworking of God-centeredness in the individual and corporate experience of the people of God. Uh, another one from Kevin Navarro. Worship is our response to what God has revealed about himself. The scriptures are the written record where we receive God's special revelation. Through the scriptures, we learn about God, we learn about his love for his people, and we discover his redemptive plan. Worship is our response to this foundational truth. Those are pretty good. Yeah, I like Navarro's. Yeah. Uh, so here's a working definition. Um, 
and, and this is harder to do than many realize. Uh, you, you just ask the average Christian what worship is, and you're going to see many struggle to define it. Um, maybe they think it's singing on Sunday morning. Or- well, yeah, it, it, that's still a pet peeve of mine. Okay, we're going to worship now. It's like you have no idea that you've been worshiping all the way up to this point. Um, yeah, right now what we're going to do is sing. Or but, hopefully all week. Yeah. yeah. Um, so true. Here, this comes from Block, uh, from For the Glory of God. This is his uh, biblical theology, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, true worship involves reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accordance with his will. So all these definitions in one way or another are man responding to what God is revealing. Right. That's the foundation. Right. Point. And that, that's actually a key point, And we'll kind of draw that all together at the end. Um, so what are some features of worship? Well, first we would say it's, it's reactive, which is what you just said. Um, we cannot worship God properly if God does not first reveal himself to us or open our eyes to understand biblical revelation. So that's critical. Therefore, it's also only worship when it is in accordance to revealed truth and in line with his revealed will. That one's huge. Um, one cannot truly worship when it arises from one's own imaginations or feelings. Uh, Cranfield, which uh, he did this incredible commentary of Romans, critical commentary. Um, but even though it's very critical, meaning heavy, heavy on the Greek, um, it's actually, have you ever used it? Yeah, it's a classic. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's a good one. Uh, this one actually comes from an uh, article he wrote in the Scottish Journal of Theology, something that Matt and I just read on occasion. <laughs> Not. Anyhow, <laughs> this is what he says on Romans 12, 1 and 2. He points out that it was intelligent, understanding worship, which is consonant with the truth of the gospel, is indeed nothing less than the offering of one's whole self in the whole of one's concrete living, in one's inward thought, feelings, and aspirations, but also in one's word, words and deeds. So he certainly expands it from how you feel or just we're, now we're going to worship by singing. Yeah. Um, so what is the object of worship? Well, it's God. Uh, Revelation 19.10, we have uh, John. It says, I fell at the angel's feet to worship him. And he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. And then he commands, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is in the spirit of prophecy. He does it again, and uh, so he didn't learn his lesson in Revelation 22, 8, 9. Uh, and again, the command is still the same, worship God. Yeah. So, so what then is the basis of worship? Well, it's that God is spirit. Uh, John four twenty four, the classic, uh, or a classic passage, uh, it says, "God is is Jesus talking. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth." So, a couple of components here. First of all, this is not when He says spirit worship in spirit and truth. He's not speaking of the Holy Spirit there. Rather, it's simply defining the essential nature of God. And you'll have to go back to our theology proper episodes to know what we mean by that, but it's just, it's God's being. What is he? Um, well, his essence is that he is spirit. It's actually better translated here as spiritual because um, it, it's not describing God as, you know, just some bodiless entity like a ghost, uh, but it also means that he cannot be contained in any physical representation, uh, which is why graven images were forbidden. Along with that, God is not confined to any particular place. 
though in times past, it was the Old Testament temple. Um, and there he had identified himself in that specific place. Um, so in calling for worship um, in the spirit and truth, what the Lord is stating is that um, more than just worship from the heart. Um, th this was already the characteristic of true worship in the Old Testament. Um, nor a spirituality of God, a new revelation, Isaiah 31, 3. Christ is speaking of the new reality of worship, which comes from him. Uh, it's a messianic statement. Uh, so God now confronts man directly in Christ rather than in the shadows of the typical form. Yeah, so instead of you, you experiencing God in the showbread or the altar or all those things, Christ is saying something new is coming and it's going to be bound up in him. And so uh, our worship in the church is going to be defined by a person, Christ, rather than just the rituals and, and the, the or as uh, Sosi said, yeah. the shadows uh, right. of the Old Testament. So he also says that it's to be done in truth. And you can understand that in two aspects. It would be conformed to the Bible would be the first one. Uh, Jesus, in his great prayer in John 17, said, sanctify them in the truth. And then he defines what that is. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself. For what purpose? So that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So it's it's going to be built around and conformed by the word. John Calvin says something good here. Um, he says, the word of the Lord is the sole way that can lead us in our search for what is lawful to hold concerning God. It will readily keep and restrain us from all rashness, for we know that the moment we exceed the bounds of the word, our course is outside the pathway and in darkness, and that there we will repeatedly wander, slip, and stumble. So when we talk about worship, it should always have a conformity to the word. The second aspect of this in truth, though, is that it's genuine. So Psalm 19, 7 through 9 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Those are all just different terms for the Bible. Uh, the word of God, the reveal, his revelation to us. In other words, in truth means that worship must conform and function in the, within the realm of what is true. Worship is not what we define it to be, but what God defines it to be. So this makes the word of God central in defining worship. Yeah, now the relationship of, of the word in the church um, here is, is... You mean the worship. What did I say? Word. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> The relationship of worship in the church. We're not functioning really well. We're on a low ebb, but we're both kind of wandering around like dead toads. I thought it was turtle. Turtles. Dead yeah. turtle. Yeah. We're moving just slow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so first of all, uh, it's always founded upon God, uh, who alone is worthy of worship. Uh, it's also noteworthy that while in the Old Testament it, that it's replete with examples of cultic worship, never does the New Testament connect Christians with cultic worship. You remember those, that's a term that means in accord to certain rituals or right, right. religious practices, um, which we see all over the Old Testament. Uh, the emphasis on their gathering in the New Testament is not on, or in the Old, is not on worship as much as it is encouraging and instructing one another. 
the reason for this is that the New Testament views life as a service of true worship. Uh, we reveal who and what we worship and how we live. So it's not just a Sunday morning deal. It's you're not to live a life of worship. Yeah, and and we're going to actually do a series, a whole series on just what is worship and develop uh, a biblical theology of worship because we think we both, I believe we both would agree that this is one totally messed up understanding in the church today. People don't know what worship is, and as a result, they don't realize that they're always worshiping. Um, yeah, that cultic worship, though, is worthwhile because it like it commands us to remember the Lord in the Lord's Supper, right? But it doesn't lay out the exact rituals of it. And that that's the difference between cultic worship versus just this worship in spirit and truth of the emphasis is on the remembering of our Lord in the Lord's Supper rather than all the rituals that are attached to how do you hand out the elements, who's to receive them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But go ahead. Um, what is it? Sip it, don't dip it. <laughs> what? Yeah, I think it, it, intinction. It's where oh, you, yes. uh, yeah. where you take the bread and you dip it into the wine or the juice and then pop it in your mouth. Well, and they so, did that at Mars Hill with uh, at Driscoll's old church. You walked off, they had a big goblet and you picked up a chunk of bread and you dipped it and then yeah. you tossed it in. Some went. people are really against that because they really want you to focus on what each of the two elements are signifying separately. Um, What's your thoughts on it? I like that. I like the separate aspects of I it. I do too. Um, though I'm not going to go on a rant if someone does intention. Right. Because um, the cultic is not the point. The issue. Right. right. It's are you remembering. Right. Um, Sosi points out that it also has effects on the church. Uh, speaking of the Corinthian church, he knows all manifestations of the spirit in the worship at Corinth were designed to build up the total community of believers. This took place through the growth of individuals, but that which was done uh, only for self-edification was wrong. Uh, so there's that corporate thing there. This is a powerful point to make because it challenges that that oft idea that worship is what I get out of it rather than the body as a whole worshiping truly together for one another. Yeah, and that not that, though, I mean, why do people leave churches? Not, I mean, if they leave because there's an unsound church, that's one thing, but so often it's because they're not getting something out of it. Exactly, it's or not, or how they pick a church, right? Like I, I, this music that they do here is really well done and it's quote, more worshipful or whatever, but it really that kind of statement's based around how that worship is making them feel. Yep, yeah. So along with that, then we, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the regulative versus the normative rule of worship. Um, regulative rule argues that only that which is expressly commanded in the scripture is to be used in the corporate gathering to worship. Now, we've talked about this already with Spurgeon and his great quote about if, we, if you allow instruments, uh, you're basically a circus. Um, right. The normative rule argues that it's not expressly forbidden, then the ch church is uh, free to use anything. Uh, this is actually a theological argument, though, that's not found in the Bible, and both sides will give examples on how their position creates either legalism or licentiousness, but they really fail to address the motivation behind what is or is not done. They claim to love, but their hearts are far from the Lord in reality. So, you know, they're so proud of their regulative form, 
that they fail to love their brothers. Right. Um, the regulative rule, usually those sees the church in Israel as the same, and, uh, and therefore many Old Testament regulations end up getting brought into the church. Um, but if the church is not Israel, then only the New Testament, especially the epistles, are able to speak to the worship in the church, and they're extremely silent as to what is and is not allowed. Um, Finally, neither position really brings finality to anything because even within both camps, there's no full agreement. Um, within the regulative principle, you got people who think only psalms, uh, only chanting, only uh, no, no instrumentation, and you have all the way over to full-blown bands. So our position would be that the problem is exacerbated really by the improper grasp of what worship is bound up, that worship is bound up in our daily life, not only when the church gathers. And so when we see a Sunday service as the time of worship, uh, we then begin to see other times as not worship. And that's the real error. Mm -hmm. The external expression of the corporate gathering is less important than the purpose and focus of what, it, uh, what is done and not done. So if the purpose is primarily for what pleases the people, then it's likely done wrongly or is wrong in itself. If the purpose is to draw the minds of the people to see the person and character of God, then it is likely done rightly and in line with Scripture. That's not that's not that hard of a concept. Yeah. So so you're not denying that there is something unique that's taking place when the church gathers. You're just, but you're also not saying that that's the only time worship is right. happening. Is right. Your point. And, and, and when we start saying, yeah, and, and so we have to constantly fight in our minds. And I think it really is a genuine battle for me that when I gather with the church, I'm gathering a, a bunch of individual worshipers to, incorporate, to corporately worship together. And, and how that's going to be done is through um, the hearing of the word and then the heeding of the word and the singing of the word and the praying of the word. I think it's going to all be built around the word. But, but when you think that that's the only time you really worshiped, then you're, you're going to suck as a father because you don't understand that being a father is worship and, and being a mother is worship. And, and so, but, but I think that if you can come and again, we'll do with deal with this in detail when we get to that, those podcasts, but when a mother can realize that, she, she willingly and happily embraces her motherhood and what all that that involves um, as something that brings glory to God, then motherhood becomes beautiful, even though it's filled with dirty diapers and vomit and right. disciplines. Yeah. So the first principle is the purpose of the church is, is worship of, right, of God. Right. The second one we would say is, uh, another important one is that it is witness. Um, now, this is not what people are likely thinking of. We're not talking about simply evangelism here. This is really that task of individuals of a church. Um, that's what evangelism is, though certainly evangelism occurs on a corporate level as well. Uh, we're rather speaking here of the responsibility and task of giving testimony of what God is doing and who Jesus Christ is and what is to come. Um, now, that may sound like evangelism, but it's actually something more. Uh, and we're going to try and make this clear. Uh, John, My goodness, I'm sorry. Are you I'm struggling to, over there? You need help? Yeah, I'm having a hard time getting situated. Forgive me, everyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> Go ahead. So, <laughs> Ignore the man behind the curtain. <laughs> um, fumbling over here. This is what you got to work with. <laughs> yeah. I can't work like this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Go back to your day trading. <laughs> 
John the Baptist, as a precursor, uh, says that he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Um, so he's one. Then you got that apostolic witness. Um, and, and that's a big one. Yeah, understand that this is what we're doing on any given Sunday when we open up the word, uh, that it's nothing, nothing less than hearing and learning the testimony of the apostles, right? Assuming, of course, you're in the New Testament. Um, but just listen to some of these verses, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Um, or in Acts 2.32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we, uh, apostles, are all witnesses. In Acts 3.15, but you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Again, that's that apostolic witness. Um, Acts 4.33, and with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. And then in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Uh, and here he is speaking about those who fight against this, this apostolic message and who reject it and refuse to therefore obey it. And then another one, uh, 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. So we would say that the church today continues, therefore, to be a faithful witness, but when it is faithful to teach and to preach and to obey that apostolic witness located in the New Testament. Uh, it's lost when the church shifts its focus to other tasks and voices. You know, for example, the social justice stuff going on, politics, uh, economic issues, and, you know, we're seeing this in crazy detail today. Yeah, but it's, I mean, the witness, you know, we, again, it's not just evangelism, it's literally upholding the New Testament and the apostolic writings and saying, this is, they witness these things and we believe, we testify and believe that these things are true as well. And we're calling you to come, hear, believe, and obey. Um, it, it's not sexy. No. Right. I mean, and and it's not the cutting edge. And so people who are always looking for that, I think that's what's behind my struggle when I hear people tell me that they want to go to a church where there's relevant preaching. I, because the relevant preaching almost never is just a simple exposition of the text. <laughs> Which ironically is actually what's relevant. Yeah, that's the only thing that's relevant. Um and, and so instead, it's on how to fix your marriage and how to handle your money and on and on and on. But it's failing to really just simply be a faithful testimony of the witness of the apostles under the inspiration of Spirit and that we give them that word. Yeah. And that, that so, goes to the third thing. Oh, you were going to say something? No, I was going to transition you. Oh. I was going to say, so that leads us to the oh. third point. Yeah. All right. So the third one is then establishing what's called the faith. Now, that phrase, the faith, is not just some vague idea. And we've said this many times in other po podcasts, but we're going to repeat it. Um, it's also not referring to what a person's faith, meaning uh, their own personal act of believing. So when it talks about establishing the faith, we're not establishing your faith, uh, how you believe. In other words, you will hear people say, well, I just need to exercise more faith. That usually means that they need to not fret so much or they need to trust that God is doing something, whatever that may be. 
But when we use the word the faith, uh, and both words need to be present there, the faith, in the, uh, it's a technical phrase in the New Testament that speaks of the body of truth and doctrine that makes up what a Christian is to believe. In other words, it would be sound theology, and it's something that the local church is to abound in teaching so that the people present can know what is true, what is false, what to do, what to avoid, who to follow, who to shun, what to love, what to hate, and so on and so forth. And it's found only in the Word, and it's learned via teaching and preaching. So we're, we have a bunch of uh, term, uh, phrases where uh, our passages where this is used. We're just going to go back and forth and quickly state them. Yeah. So in Acts 15, 21 through 22, uh, he says, be strengthened where or on what will in the faith. Yeah. Yeah, or First Corinthians sixteen thirteen, uh, Paul admonishes them: stand firm in the faith. In Second Corinthians thirteen five, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Yeah, if you're a believer, how do you know if you're in that realm of truth and you believe that? Ephesians four eleven through fifteen, uh, all of all of what we do is until we attain to the unity of the faith. Yeah, in Philippians one twenty five. Paul is talking about their their progress and joy where in the faith. Uh, Colossians 1.23, he just simply says, continue in the faith. In 1 Timothy 3.9, talks about holding to the mystery of the faith. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.1, some will fall away from the faith. 1 Timothy 4.6, you're to be nourished on the words of the faith. 1 Timothy 5.8, denied the, uh, he describes those who have denied the faith and that they are worse than an unbeliever. In 1 Timothy 6.10, he talks about those who have wandered from the faith. Uh, 1 Timothy 6.21, had they gone astray from the faith? 2 Timothy 3.8, they've rejected as regards the faith. Um, yeah. They, to yeah, the faith, yeah. yeah I, I should have typed that better. Anyhow, um, Titus 1.13, that they may be sound in the faith. Second uh, Timothy four seven he says I have kept the faith. Uh, oh, I skipped one. Sorry about that. Titus three fifteen greet those who love us in the faith. And then Jude one three those he uses boxing terms. He says contend or fight earnestly for the faith. All right. So hopefully with that quick review, you can see that whether you understand that or not, the New Testament says there's this body of truth called the faith. And we need to fight for it. We need to love it. We need to continue it. We need to hold fast to it. We need not to reject it. And that there are people who will ultimately fall from it. So a local gathering that's not developing the people to grow with regard to the faith is a poor excuse for a church, we would say. Um, vague doctrine, in other words, is never good. So 1 Timothy 4, 6 talks about being nourished on sound doctrine. Think about how many churches today have emaciated souls because all they hear are so-called relevant messages on how to have a happy life. Vagueness will always breed dissension, though, because eventually every type of doctrine is floating around the church, and people then begin to divide into groups. That's, that's one of those strange things is the pastor wants to be vague so that he doesn't create tensions but in fact, he all he really does is breed the dissension because now every kind of doctrine is wandering. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. You you don't help anybody by being vague. So Paul tells Titus, who is in Crete, uh, trying to fix problems in a very young and messed up church. He says, "Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine." 
That's in Titus 2.1. So if you belong to a church that's more interested in everyone getting along by being vague, we would actually encourage you to begin to cast your eyes about for one, uh, a church that's more sound in doctrine. Unless, of course, you're a person in position to actually affect change in your church, then what we would tell you to do is repent. Yeah, it's a false unity, right? I mean, yeah. if, 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 they're, if they're being vague on purpose so that people get along— it, you, nothing's actually unified. No. In fact, we, we had that when I first came to our church um, many years ago. And what you ended up having is a lot of goats who thought they were sheep and a lot of sheep that didn't know they were sheep. <laughs> uh, I mean, it just, it's just, it's a mess. And so now you're trying to pastor and shepherd goats who don't want to be shepherded because they're not sheep. Uh, so the better you define it. In fact, have you ever heard... Uh, you know Steve Lawson. Mm -hmm. He he took a church. I just uh, quoted him in my sermon oh, on Sunday. Okay, uh, he he shared with me a story. He was he took over a church in Alabama and um, big church, and found out that the worship leader, which gets into that worship thing, he was the guy that felt that he was the key to the success of the church. And uh, Steve was just like, "No, I'm the worship leader." Uh, he says, the one who preaches the word is the worship leader, not the singer. And that set the tone. But what happened is as he began to expositionally preach week in and week out, people were becoming converted. <laughs> in other words, it's, it was a massive church, but it wasn't really a church. It was filled with unbelievers who were members and in positions of power. And so now they're coming to faith. And as they're coming to faith, they're starting to ask uncomfortable questions. And the end result was that he was fired. Um, because the, the, the vast majority of the church were still not wanting to center themselves around the truth and to be defined by that. And so that's, he left, and he ended up starting a new church, uh, which I believe he still pastors now. But all, all of that came because he simply began to establish the Word of God as a centerpiece of the church. People heard and were converted. That's a pretty cool story, yeah. but— that's what's wrong with so many of our churches is it's filled with vagaries. And as a result, people have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, yeah. The, the, <laughs> I mean, the, we could go on yeah. on with stories. Well, it's, the, it's interesting though, because the quote, I, I was preaching on persecution and suffering. And the point I was trying to make to the people was, look, you can't woo people into heaven. Um, you, at some point you have to speak truth. And I said, just look at the example of Jesus. He wasn't killed because he fed hungry people. He wasn't crucified because he healed sick people. He was ultimately crucified, not because he did some things, but because he said some things. He spoke truth. Men loved darkness rather than light. And then when he shows up and starts exposing their deeds, they hate him for it. So uh, that was the point. But Steve Lawson did an awesome quote. He said, the problem with most preachers today is that no one wants to kill him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. It was, well, it was, was it John MacArthur? I can't remember who it was. Um, maybe it was Sproul. But the word is preached so badly, or maybe it's the gospel is preached so poorly that the, uh, the non-elect don't even know what to reject. <laughs> but, I mean, it's true. You know, you walk away and the gospel is some happy little sweet thing rather than that you are a wicked sinner under the wrath of God and that you need to flee to God through Christ Jesus to be saved. Um, and it just that doesn't preach as fun. Well, sure. Anyhow, go ahead. So we would just say, though, here, if you, if you, hopefully you're getting it, but the purpose of the gathering 
is intrinsically word bound. It's not something that's experientially focused, uh, like an ex a focus of experience. Every aspect of what might be found in a solid service is defined and explained in the word. None of it is simply up to the people as they wish. So when the church sings, they're instructing one another. Um, when they remember the Lord in communion, it is because the word informs them of what he did and who he was. When they baptize, it is in accord to the formula given in the word. When they teach or preach, they're to be teaching or preaching the word. Um, so everything's word bound. Yeah, that's every aspect of it. Yeah, from the beginning to the end, I, I think that we have the confidence that we would be able to say that when you come to one of our campuses, from the moment you walk in and the service begins to the moment it ends, it's word, the mm -hmm. word. It's, it may show itself in various forms, but everything that we do is defined uh, by the word. And, and, and we, we've seen its transformative power as a result. Yep, yep, yep. So we hope this has been helpful. Uh, we hope it provokes a little bit of thinking on your part. And we're going to pick it up again in the next episode, Lord willing. Uh, so until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the church. Don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review on iTunes. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tell a friend.